Hello, welcome to Leto Narrative Dissidents. This is episode five, Bluebeard's Bride. And before we begin our discussion of this game, uh, there is a uh, content warning. Bluebeard's Bride is a game about the terrible realities of women's lives. Uh, That is a quote from the game itself. It discusses sexual assault, body horror, torture, murder, suicide, and other horrific topics. Our conversation about the this game will touch on these topics as well. Thank you for your understanding. This is our next game that we are discussing. And of course, with me, as always, is Greg and James. So Bluebeard's Bride is a game from Magpie Games. It is written by Whitney uh, Beltran, uh, Marissa Kelly, and Sarah Richardson. And it is a heavily modified, powered by the apocalypse game based on the fairy tale of Bluebeard. In this game, in a in a short version of it, what it of what it is about, the players uh, three to five total, uh, including the groundskeeper who is the the, the GM uh, slash referee, and then the players, uh, the players all play aspects of the bride. Each aspect is called a sister. Uh, sisters represent a different uh, aspect of the bride's uh, personality or her traits. Uh, and they are archetypal in nature. Uh, there are five, and they range from the animus to the witch. Animus, the fatale, the mother, the virgin, and the witch. The game is about exploring Bluebeard's house uh, while he is away, seeing what is in the room, uh, each room, uh, to ultimately it's about an, investigating Bluebeard himself uh, to figure out whether... Uh, you should be faithful to or disloyal to him. Um, and then what happens when the bride reaches the final room? Um, what is the end of this fairy tale? Because there are many versions of the fairy tale and the book uh, it points out that, you know, there are many different versions. The, the version that the book tells is that the bride is killed by Bluebeard at the end uh, because she enters the one room he is forbidden. Yeah, we um, should we should yeah. do a brief version of Bluebeard just for people who aren't familiar with the story, which is that a woman marries this rich man with a blue beard and is brought to his huge elaborate mansion and is told, oh, well, I'm going away on a trip and you're the mistress of the house and you can go anywhere and do anything you want except for this one room. And there's this little, this small, we'll say, gold key that opens the forbidden room. And he's like, you know, go anywhere you want, but there, that's my place. And off he goes, and she thinks, oh, I shouldn't go in that room, I shouldn't go in that room, I shouldn't go in that room, but, you know, man, what's in that room? And so she opens up the room and finds a just horror show of dead ex-wives all murdered by Bluebeard, at which point he sweeps in behind her and says, "I, t- I you had one job, which was to not look in the room where I keep my murdered ex-wives, and now you must join them. Mm-hmm. And it's called Bluebeard. So that is, is my extremely short version of it. Yes. It's worth saying that in in many versions, including the original Charles Perrault, she doesn't die. She gets away, usually because she's saved by a man, usually her brother, who conveniently, in the way of fairy tales, rocks up and and, um, 
and dispatches Bluebeard, or at least helps her helps her away. But that is explicitly within this game. She dies. Yeah. Well, uh, or well, can yeah. she can? Well, within are... the within the the story they tell at the start, yeah. and they yeah. spend yes. several pages recounting the story. She dies. But there are other endings possible within mm. the play of the game. All of them, however, I will point out, are bad. Yeah, there's yeah. no there's no happy ending. There is no There's no and then you get revenge on Bluebeard. You kill him and you take all his stuff. No, that this is one of those games. Mm-hmm. No. No. The other thing you, we didn't say is it's this is explicitly a one shot. Um, yeah, yes. it's a single oh, session a game, yeah. but a replayable oh. one shot. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it it's not a one and done. It's designed for repeated play and should be an, an experience that grows and differs every time it is it is replayed. This is not mm-hmm. like rerunning a D and D module two or three times. Yeah, it actually suggests that you can incorporate previous brides into your next iteration of the game, where if a bride got killed, she returns as one of the horrors that haunts the house. And I can see where if I'd played this, uh, you know, if, uh, say, James had run a session of this for me, and, you know, when we all had our, our shiversome fun with our bride dying, and then a year later I played it with a different group, but he introduces what is clearly the wreckage of the previous game lurking around the house making trouble. I can see how that would work really well. That would be, as they say, a nice callback. Yeah, this is very explicitly a horror game. At the beginning does mention safety tools and sort of talks about some of the topics that can arise from the game and how to deal with that. But yeah, the idea is that it's three to five players uh, telling a horror story uh, collaboratively and and what happens uh, about the fate of this young bride and the the thing and the wonders and horrors she sees in this mansion, which is obviously... Um, pretty explicitly like unnatural. Like there are fantastic creatures and artifacts and monsters lurking around um, and all, and pretty much anything can happen. It is the realm of, of, uh, of dark fantasy or horror. So yeah, um, I, and, I would yeah. call it surrealisme guignol. It is extremely bloody weird stuff that aims to rummage around in your subconscious mind and force things to the surface. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's it's a very meta game. I don't think I've ever read more a more meta role-playing game. It, it exists on the level of archetypes and um, stereotypes and those deep Jungian concepts that live, mm-hmm. you know, deep within us and help define the way we see the world, and which is where fairy tales live as well. And um, it's explicitly engaging with those. It's not trying to tell you a nice story. It is trying to get inside your head. Yes. Um, And it's doing this through a single story. It is also um, a role-playing game designed around a single story. It is only meant to tell the story of Bluebeard and his bride. Um, Or Bluebeard's bride, really. It's really, it's about the bride. Like, Bluebeard is not, uh, is explicitly not meant to be a protagonist or sympathetic. He is a force of nature uh um and, you know, and not not to be <laughs> sympathized with so he's he's the yeah. arctic mm-hmm. in john carpenter's the thing yeah yeah uh, and or yeah so 
the force that keeps you constrained, but is not present to be negotiated with, I guess is what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I didn't get the feeling that he is ever intended to develop as a character. He's just there. Right. Well, I mean, you learn about his, like, I think part of it <laughs> you learn is about finding... women he's killed or forced yeah. into suicide. Right. Or forced into suicide or turned into monsters or they become monsters in order to please him. Like that's that's his backstory, the horrific things he has done. So yeah, he stands in as a metaphor for the patriarchy, really. Yeah, when you were talking about the uh, the version of the story where her brother comes and saves her, I'm like, oh, so okay, probably the original story of Bluebeard was written as a cautionary tale to warn men to not marry women with brothers. There, uh, the original, the actual, I did look it up. the The original Bluebeard did have has an explicit moral one is and and uh a lot of folklorists believe that the, the original moral is you know women don't be curious about things <laughs> obey your husband um but the the corollary moral that is written explicitly um in the version i read uh says that husbands you cannot ask your wife to do the impossible um so but that's obvious seems to be added as a you know after uh thought um, so, um, yeah, I suppose we should, uh, so yeah, if you're playing this game, um, definitely read the front of, before we get into what the game does, um, definitely read about the X card system, uh, which is, yes, this is for, for uh, because of the topics this game can broach, um, you need safety tools. Now this X card is not the only one. There are multiple safety tools on there, uh, out there, but like it is, uh, certainly one of the more well-known systems and the idea is that there's a a physical card in the center of the table that anyone can tap when somebody broaches a subject that they are uncomfortable and wishes to avoid um so not not even uncomfortable i would say with the with safety tools it's like uh more this is the bad kind of bad and not the good kind of bad Mm -hmm. because there's all kinds of stuff that'll happen in any horror game that will, on one level, make you uncomfortable. And in some ways, that's what you sign up for, right? Right. Uh, you know, you, if I play Delta Green with Dennis Detwiller, I know I've set myself up to explore the nihilistic darkness of the human soul, and I, you know, and, and I'm into it. I'm there for it. But there are times where, you know, I'm going to be playing a game and it's suddenly like, okay, let's turn this into an explicit rape scene and I'm just going to be hammering that X card like I'm uh, one of those guinea pigs that got the wire to the pleasure center of their brain. I'm just going to be pounding that thing. and be like, no, 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 no. This has gone from being a pleasurable, distant intellectual exercise into territory that I don't want to get into, which it's important. And I I do believe that a key development in gaming is this idea of safety tools. And I believe in them because for the same reason that I believe in having a sheath for a knife. And if your sheath is strong, you can have a sharper knife. And if I have robust safety tools in play, I can explore deeper, nastier, darker stuff 
with the knowledge that people can nope out if they need to. Mm-hmm. Right? Am I am I just being weird, or is does this make sense? Completely. People forget that um, the concept of role play and the term itself actually came from psychotherapy. It is it's a tool. It's a it's a tool that can be used to affect and change people. And there are role playing games out there that are being devised and used in therapy to you know to heal people. But it's it's a tool. You know, you can't build a tool that's only for there for good. It's role playing is a, is a powerful thing, and we forget forget that a lot of the time. Um, so I think the X card is really valuable. It should also be said that when you tap, you tap the X card. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to say why you're uncomfortable. You don't have to say I'm uncomfortable. All you do is you tap the card, and the game moves to a different place. It's a it's a no foul thing. It, it's you know anyone can use it. You don't have to say why. And it could be hard to keep that no foul feel of it. You know, when, Hmm. when I'm running a game and someone X cards me on something that I did not think was, uh, particularly bad or edgy or, uh, distressing, it's hard not to feel a little rejected and a little that, you know, Oh, they don't, they don't like my stuff, but I mean, I, that's my problem. That's not their problem. And I should just be the mature adult in the room who's like, okay, well, you know, if I'm running a game and someone's not having fun, that's a, that's my problem. That's actually our problem, but it's the problem that only I can fix for us. So, you know. Yeah. And it works much better with stuff like Powered by the Apocalypse Systems, which are essentially a collaboration between the GM and the and the players, rather than more tightly scripted, more linear plots, more more pre written stuff, which may have built in story beats and stuff. No, the story has to go to this point, or it's not going to work as a story. If someone X cards out at that point, the story is in trouble. But that I'm not going to genocide a bunch of orcs. What am I, a monster? <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, stuff where the, the story is, is evolves and develops and is, is co- collaboratively created along the way, the X card is a, fits perfectly within that. And I think should, you know, the fact that games are now incorporating it within the rulebook as an explicit, you should use this as part of your play, is can only be seen as a good thing. Yeah. Um, certainly I've seen a lot of discussion in the, in the greater horror community, not just games, but, you know, fiction and movies. Uh, written fiction in movies um, that, you know, it is a way to confront your own traumas. In fact, there's, I saw some discussion on social media about like you, there's uh, some, some horror fans believe that you must be that horror is only for those who want to uh, 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 confront their traumas or have catharsis through their traumas. Um, And that aren't, if you aren't traumatized horror, you shouldn't be into horror. It was an odd statement, but like, yeah, that's a weird hill to die on. Um, (laughs) Uh, but yeah, that, that, that is, um, that's, that's a different discussion, but like, but it's, it's a longstanding thing that you use that horror, uh, horror's appeals for some people, at least that they can like talk about the things that have harmed them in the past without, you know, actually confronting them. So, well, I, I'm trying to, I, I wish I knew the source on this, but there was someone who said, yeah. People are always surprised that women, when they meet a woman who's a horror fan and who likes these slasher movies and 
and you know, I and this this woman who's writing this is like, let me tell you why I like them, because they are the genre that explicitly tells me I'm not being stupid for worrying. It's the one that isn't. It's the genre that isn't telling me everything will be fine. You don't have to worry. Every, you're just being silly with your not wanting to go in the basement. And sometimes it's nice to have something that says, no, it's bad. You need to be careful and you need to be aware. Um, interestingly enough, I just saw a movie um, that really emphasizes that in sort of the long term. Uh, it's the 2018 Halloween, the 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 reboot sequel that stars Jamie Lee Curtis uh, and, and is basically ignores all the other sequels and takes place after the original. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like 40 years later. And um, Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, has been this is defined her. She's turned her house into a uh, fortress. She practices firearms every day. She has traps set up in her house. Um, and she taught her, her daughter how to shoot and her daughter. And that's been the source of major emotional strife in her family because she's never, she's just waited for the days for the killer, Michael Myers to escape and the rest of her family just, you know, oh, mom, you're being silly. This is never going to happen. He's never going to get out. You're just, you're just alienating us. You're just freaking out for no reason. And, um, get, you know, obviously <laughs> Laurie Strode was right, but it would um, be, it would be a very different movie if they were right. And this was just the intri- intricate portrait of a woman who can't let her trauma go, but no. Right. Um, but yeah, so like they're, they're examining like the long-term ramifications of, you know, uh, uh, dealing with this kind of violence and, um, so I feel like that's an interesting, uh, I mean, and, and you've seen it before too, like Terminator two, that was kind of a whole <laughs> subplot, uh, of, uh, Sarah Connor's character. So, um, yeah, I can, it, it doesn't go. And this is also what Bluebeard's Bride is about is like the, the long term ramifications of, uh, um, what it's like to be a woman of like what, what the realities of, uh, patriarchal violence are. So, and how they affect everyone, how they, yeah. So, yeah, yeah my my notes about what it does. Uh, we've covered that it's psycholo- it, it models psychological conflict by having players stand in as psychological facets. Uh, my notes say, edgy ambiguity, mature audiences, for real. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times the mature audiences label is on stuff it's like oh there's gonna be boobies it's mature audiences whereas this is no you are going to have to think about things that have no clean clear solution and are very unpleasant it's you know grown-up audiences mm-hmm. uh, grown-ups is a good word so yeah, i don't think this would appeal i think this would only appeal to grown-ups too <laughs> I mean, I don't think the the sort of I guess the the, the stereotype is the edge lord, the, the 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 guy with the trench coat and katana who's very into brooding and extreme violence and gore, but only in sort of a gratuitous way. This is not this ain't that. Yeah, this is all everything like the whole every every single rule in this game, everything every bit of writing in this game is about taking themes that your players establish at the beginning and then reinforcing them, building upon them, and like causing strife and misery and just, yeah, uh, tailing a 
very weaving a very dark story from these building blocks you set out at the start. Uh, my my next note is it's a too tight corset for the soul, claustrophobic, feminine, and built to exclude a happy ending. In mm-hmm. a horror game, these are all positives. Yeah, it, it's very constrained. It's very constrained. In, I mean, it, absolutely two main constraints. First of all, there is only one active character within the game because everyone is playing a facet of the same human being um and this is not new to this game this has been used a few times everyone is john uh was everybody is john which is a one-page game which mm-hmm. i think kick-started recently in a much bigger version but the one-page game is, is still out there where you are all different personalities within the head of a violently disturbed man i think living in cleveland um yeah and- that'll do it but um, that's explicitly, that's a, a competitive game. You are fighting for control. It's very fast. It's very funny, violent, and, and, and gratuitous. Whereas Bluebeard's Behind is explicitly cooperative. You're the, the different facets of the personality, the uh, different archetypes are working together. Well, to, not always, well not, well, not always, but the, inten- yeah. the intention is that there is a common cause, at least. Yeah, that's true. Um, there was also, there was um, a game in the mid to late nineties that came out as a proper published game in which where I think you're all I think you're all human personalities trapped within the body of an alien and that's chaotic. Chaotic, yes. With a K. Yes. I can't remember the names of the streets in my town, but I can remember chaotic. (laughs) Wow, well you're one up on me there. Um (laughs) yeah. So it's it's been done before, but what it does here is it, it uses that not simply as a clever mechanic, but as, as a way of creating claustrophobia and, and tension um, because you are, you know, not exactly wrestling for control. Uh, you can hand over control at, at any point. Um, and I don't, unless I missed a rule, um, the other personalities can't, um, can't fight, can't grab control off the, the active player. There are moves that allow them to do that. Certain Ooh, uh, I've, I've, certain archetypes have. Uh, I believe I want to say Fatal has a specific move that lets her grab control. Um, but there are specific moves that let you do that. Um, there's also okay, moves, yeah, that let you give up control. Uh, yes, to to avoid damage. Uh, quite quite explicitly, yeah. there's, there's the pass the key. Um, but the other the other area of constraints is simply what the character can do because this uses moves in a very powered by the apocalypse way, mm-hmm. um, and the move the the what the moves can do and simply the number of moves is the number of moves is very small and what they let you do is behave in the way that a a new bride within a certain type of social structure would be allowed to behave. This is not a typical role-playing game in which you can do anything that comes to your mind or anything that's that's reasonable. You can only do a very certain restrained subset of moves, and I have a list of them somewhere, but I'm sure one of you two can jump in ahead of me. Well, what I was going to say is not I wasn't going to list the moves, but just the idea that, yes, it's very constraining, but that is, again a feature and not a bug. Oh yeah it, yeah. it it is it follows the trajectory of Bluebeard's Bride, but this is an extremely uh archetypal story for a reason. And complaining that, oh, you can only play one story with it is uh I, I don't think anyone is gonna make that complaint who gets it or who enjoys it and is into it. It's like you never hear a romance novel 
uh, fan say, oh, it was very disappointing. They they got together in the end, and they lived happily ever after. And you never hear a mystery novel fan say, oh, it sucked. At the end, the detective figured out who did it. It's, you know, these... When you enter the structure, the end is implicit, and that is part of the pleasure of the structure. There are lots of genres where unpredictability and crazy wild endings are the norm rather than the exception, but there are others where it's like, no, we know what the end is going to be. It's cosmic horror. You are going to encounter something terrible. Deal yep. with it. That's what it says on the tin. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and this very structured uh, gameplay is really, I mean, literally spelled out um, like on page 90. They they have very like a, a uh, set of lists uh, the, of for the session of like what the order of play is. It's almost um, at a war game level of like first you tell the fairy tale on, on step one. Then everyone makes characters or like picks sisters, uh, which archetypes they want to play. And then you explore rooms, which is the main section of game where you enter a room, investigate it, and then leave the room until you, and the, there are three possible outcomes. One, you get three, um, tokens, uh, to fulfill up, uh, I believe it's three to fill up the faithful track or enough tokens to fill up the disloyal track or all of the sisters shatter. Uh, and when they shatter, they've essentially taken so much trauma, they become sort of a co-groundskeeper character, um, and they become, you know, more antagonistic to the remaining sisters. Um, and those are the three possible outcomes. And that's, that's, that's it. That's, that's the order of play. And um, within the, yeah, and, and it always ends with you entering the final room. And the final room is where you learn the truth about Bluebeard. And there are variations. You can show up to the final room with all your faithfulness fulfilled and either enter or just peek through the keyhole. And then there's another option where if you're unfaithful, you can either enter the room, I think, or run back to the town and try and tell them how terrible Bluebeard is. And it expli there's explicitly no chance of persuading the people living nearby that Bluebeard is actually bad. It's, you know, if you do that, it's like, okay, how does Bluebeard fuck that up for you and avenge himself on your family? Right. The, each of the, each of these uh, outcomes, they're they're basically the groundskeeper asks the group a series of questions, asking each player in turn the first question, then the second player, the second question, and so on. And they are, and the first question for disloyal outcome, if you present your evidence to the town, the first question asked is, what does the town do to rid themselves of the bride's disloyal ravings? So like which states what the town thinks of the bride's evidence. Um, and yeah, so it's, and which is also very powered by the apocalypse way of doing this as a series of questions um, that someone answers. Oh, I, uh, I broke this out actually. I'm like, there are only five possible, really five possible engines, which are get killed, be co-opted by Bluebeard, fail to get justice. Your family pays for your escape or you become a monster yourself. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's yeah. There's there's no happily ever after in that list. No, no. 
And that's kind of the point. I mean, that, that's not kind of, that's very much the point. That is the core of this game. Um, because everything is an examination of gender. I mean, of what, you know, and that, that is sort of the, the, the heart, the heart, of, the, the constraint and helplessness of the feminine position within culture. Yeah. So this is a game, this is a game that knows what it wants. Um, and is very focused and very in and executes it beautifully. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is the actual, um, the, the book is one of the most beautiful. Oh, I've seen it's so gorgeous. A, mm. a role-playing game. Um, it, the, the cover, um, has like this gold gilded, uh, design on it. Uh, it has beautiful art. It is fully colored, but sort of, I mean, limited also- palette, full color. It really mm-hmm. just uses, White, it uses sepia, black, blue, and gold. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, when you look through it, you see that there are, you know, graphic design and layout has three credits. And I'm like, oh, yeah, when you look through it, you're like, mm-hmm, yeah, this is the, this is the work of three people. Yeah, there are two, two things about it, though. I would also say it's, it's only 128 pages, which, you know, that's fine. I've, I've done games shorter than that, but it's a $50 game. Um, and there are occasional moments where the design dissolves into font soup. There's just too many typefaces on, on a page and the design becomes muddled. I'm looking at page, I think it would be 124, though I'm on the PDF. It's a little bit hard to tell. Um, it's, it's a boutique item. It's for those who want this kind of game and are prepared to pay for it. This is a truly beautiful object, but at 50 bucks for the book, it's not for everyone. Mm. No, um, I would say the PDF is a lot cheaper. I must say the PDF is, is, is very, you know, very much affordable. I think I got my copy by swapping a box set of either Delta green or unknown armies for it. So Mm. once again, proving that the, the gaming industry really makes the most sense as just an elaborate structure to allow creators to trade nice versions of their games with one another. No, no arguments there. That was how, where most of my role play collection came from back in the day. The, uh, beginning of the session, uh, in terms of what the game does, uh, the creating the sisters, um, now sisters, basically, even though this is powered by the apocalypse, there are only three, um, essentially stats, uh, for characters and you're basically uh, blood carnality and resilience. And, um, they're very, they only range from negative one to plus one. So basically one is a Z one is a negative one. One is a zero. One is a plus one. And your plus one is already filled in based on your archetype. So you don't, so the characters, uh, creation is sort of, um, answering these questions. So it's all, role-playing based um you the the groundskeeper asks you uh certain questions based on your archetype like um for the fatale what does the bride's mouth look like and then um these this is these are kind of the ingredients that will go into creating the rooms later on and sort of the themes um basically the groundskeeper is looking for what sort of themes and you know uh ideas are really resonate with the player so they can create rooms that are interesting. So if like the player playing the witch talks about being interested in dark power, well then the groundskeeper can then introduce rooms that show, well, there's a hell of a price to pay for dark power. Um, and 
Uh, but you also create bonds with other players through the sisterly bonds. Um, and this also is used to create tension between the players uh, to give them sort of conflicting agendas. Maybe one sister wants to prove her husband is faithful. The other one is disloyal and the other one wants to view him as disloyal. Um, and so, which creates more role-playing opportunities, but, um, and that's all you have to do for character for creating sisters. Again, I, I keep saying characters, but they're, have, have we moved into the how it does it segment of the, the show, do you think? Um, I was still thinking for what, because this is sort of like, I feel like a part, a large part of this game is creating what individual, there's so many ideas and possibilities the book sort of gives you, especially when you have some of the, uh, uh, um, I do have one of the supplements, the book of rooms, and that sort of gives you a lot of examples of the horrors that can be showing up in rooms. But the, the book also has a lot of examples of play. Um, and sort of the core of the book is creating horrifying and unique rooms for this, uh, for the bride to encounter. Um, and, yes, and within a very deliberate sequence, which I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll, we'll come on to as, as well. In fact, I mean, you mentioned examples of play and I've talked in, in previous episodes about how the weight that I put on a good example of play. And this book is absolutely loaded with them. And a cynic would say that it was a way of, of filling out an already, you know, quite short book and making it a bit longer. No, I think that's absolutely crucial. This is a game that needs to be demonstrated. It need, you need to understand how it is supposed to be played, how individual sequences and how the mechanics mesh with the narrative. And the examples of play are absolutely there to do that. Um, the first example of play I do I have a slight quibble with um, mm-hmm. is is one that explains basically what happens when you're trying to, you know, initiate a new room. You start off, the the bride selects a key or says, I'm selecting a key. And the, describes the key. The, the GM Yeah, the groundskeeper prompt says, describe the key and uses the description of the key. And these are not your regular door keys. These are not small brass objects with, a, you know, jagged, jagged edges. These are hugely elaborate, engraved, ornate, inlaid um you can let your imagination go wild and the groundskeeper then takes cues from that to set up what's going to be in the next room along with elements from that particular bride's um, character mm-hmm. and elements that have come out in the character generation and the wedding vows as, as well. But that particular example of play, and I've lost it. I'm scrolling through and I'm trying to find it. Um, the Virgin describes it. A- Clunky, badly carved wooden key that's too big for a hand. I'm on page 76, curating the rooms. No, this is way before that. This is um, Hugh, a page, here we go, 22. Um, it's it's keys and doors. But oh, yeah. um, the thing, you know, my my understanding of, of Powered by the Apocalypse, as I said, is that it's, it's very collaborative. This is a, a sequence in which the the bride, the um, the... The, the animus who is the, the player, the, the character of the player who currently has the bride's wedding ring, um, says, oh, I want to get out of here. They're being pursued by it, says a quiet ghost. I want to go into a room that's to see I get away from it. Not I go into a room, says what they want to do. And it's then the groundskeeper who says what happens next, who describes their action, which is you, you sort through and you find a key. The animus describes the key and it's a 
great description. The key's made of soft gold. It's slightly warm, like it's been left out in the sun. It has designs on it that look like something from Aztec art. There are little rubies embedded along the key's spine that are reminiscent of drops of blood. Well, I mean, as as a GM, that's exactly, you know, that's spurting all kinds of inspiration already. And I'm just mm -hmm. reading this thing. Um, and then, you know, the key goes in and uh, we'll go in. I put the key in the keyhole and, and turn and... That's basically where the example of play stops. Oh, no, wait, I, I, I missed a bit. I'm sorry. It's been a long day. Um, the, the animus describes the key, the groundskeeper, who is called uh, Whitney, one of the, na the names of one of the designers, um, describes what the door looks like, what the corresponding door looks like, which, of course, is then also engraved with bad symbols and stuff. Um, and the example of play ends kind of as the as the bride steps through. It's weirdly passive. It's I mean it does, it's a necessary sequence, but it's it really emphasises these constraints that we were talking about. That the the bride is not fully in control of what's going on. They're very much in control of certain elements of the narrative and of the bride's actions. But essentially, it's that it's very much the groundskeeper who is in control. You may make the moves on. you are permitted to make. Exactly. Right. Yes. Um, and in this way, it's absolutely not a typical Powered by the Apocalypse game by any means. No. That doesn't mean yeah, in any way that I mean... I'm saying it's bad. Just saying that if you see the Powered by the Apocalypse logo on the drive through page or on the back of the book, do not assume that you are going to be getting that kind of typical experience. Yeah, there are some moves that use dice. And like I said, the attributes to roll and it's, you know, one, th one th uh, two through six failure seven and above uh, a hit uh but that's it it's a very simple and uh, there's a lot of moves that aren't triggered by that have no dice rolling at all um yeah. and, I, I felt it, i felt it should have had the courage of its convictions and gone fully diceless but then i've been I, of diceless gaming for 25 30 years i'm not gonna argue with you i my notes are you know is pbta the best fit or was that a marketing decision? Because I'm like, it's this is a one-session, high-structure game built on a framework that uh, started with Apocalypse World, which famously says, this doesn't really get good until you're three or four sessions in, and is what? very focused on the interrelations that develop between character and setting. Um, it's got the very specific moves of a PBTA thing, but in many cases, they're very loosely designed, which the high degree of improv that this game requires. The game, it does. It definitely, it definitely demands a lot from. Oh everywhere. my God. You Especially need to the be, groundskeeper, but nobody can be really slacking off. Um, you need to be real good at high spooky improv. And I'm, I'm like, Naming a move, be real good at improv, is not a cure-all for this. There's, There were a number of times that I'm reading it, and I'm like, what does that mean, though? What? I, you're, you're telling me vaguely, let me find page 50. I have a specific, what does that mean? It feeds the appetite of the horror server. I'm like, what? This is, is this too abstract for me? Is this is this my time combat for uh, this game? <laughs> well, I think that's just a, it gives the thing whatever it, it is wanting. 
uh, from the bride. Um, so it could, it could be, could be carnal. It could be comfort. It could be simply the creature is lonely. Um, it, it could be literally hungry. Maybe it eats the piece of clothing. Like um, it's uh, left open to interpretation. I feel like the core element of the power by the apocalypse that this, that Bluebeard's bride is most leans on or is, is most inspired by uh, would be the conversation and question asking um, uh, triggered by certain moves. Um, because that, that's, that's such a foundational element of this game. And that's, that's something that really came into the headway through powered by the apocalypse is asking players, Oh, well, you know, what's the name of, uh, the warlord that you're fighting or what's the name, you know, what's the name of this feature of the game setting, you know, and why do you feel so guilty about your past with him? Right, exactly. And that gives the player an opportunity to add all give them some narrative agency and that's what this game is about is giving players narrative agency but in very very focused ways on a very specific set of like themes and, well i mean but yeah. let me read you a section from the gm direction chunk this is on page 80 uh, page 68 at other times, the dance flags as the players lose the beat and look to you to bolster them. The house itself holds its breath, and it is up to you to push forward, to describe how the horrors respond to the woman encroaching on their space. And I'm like, this. if I'm a GM, this doesn't help me unless I am a very abstract thinker who loves metaphor. And maybe that's okay. You know, I mean, yeah, this is a very metaphorical game. Like, this yeah, is, don't this play is, this if you yeah, do not. I said right at the beginning. <laughs> if you don't love metaphor with all your heart, <laughs> don't play Bluebeard's Bride. Yeah, don't um, don't expect like the typical thing. Like, oh well, how did the Bluebeard turn those those former brides into birds, and now he's keeping them bird cages? That doesn't. Yeah, like that's not. It's not yes. a question. That's not a question you should be thinking of. It's it's a metaphor. Or, do, do not expect at any point an explanation as to why his beard is blue. Right. right. That question is never, it never comes right. up. As one I mean, example. I have, um, I have delved into this because I, you know, folklore and fic, fic, uh, fairy tales are one of my things. Nobody knows. <laughs> it's just his beard's blue. It just is. What? Um, why is so, why is his beard blue? Because then you get the assonance with the word beard. <laughs> but it was originally written in French. Um, the only other... Which are Bob Blur, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> um, My point on. is proven! Submit! <laughs> this battle of wits is at an end! I think we, we, we mentioned it, but we didn't really uh, go too far into explaining uh, the, the wedding ring is a core mechanic of mm. the game, and that's the only thing I want to do before we move on to how it does it does what it does see um, i've made most of my how it does points but okay yeah. well i mean we're yeah we're we're blurring the lines a bit um the 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 wedding ring is what symbol is basically um which sister is in control which which aspect of the bride is in control so the wedding ring is passed between players only one can have it at a time and there are certain moves that are triggered only when you have the ring. And some of these are sort of meta moves like shiver and fear is explicitly when the person with the ring, like has a, a reaction, a visible reaction, a noticeable reaction to the horrors that when the player does, then the, the groundskeeper can activate the uh, shiver from fear um, move, which um, 
It basically keep the ring and choose two of the three things or pass the ring and choose one. It infects the bride with its perversion. It has the bride in its clutches right now, or it speaks to you. Take one trauma, just you sister. And so, um, and again, there are moves to relinquish control. There are moves to take control, um, to trade it. And there's a lot of the gameplays focus on who has the ring because they call the shots. Um, and so that, that's the last crucial, like feel game mechanic that needs to be mentioned, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was going to come in about shivering with fear specifically because this start gets into an interesting territory that the whole subject of bleed. And I'm, I never know how well known bleed is outside, um, the circles in which I move. Uh, it originally comes out of Nordic LARP. It bleed is the idea that ex, uh, emotions that you feel when you are playing a game and within Nordic LARP you know, explicitly LARPs, which can go on a lot longer than a tabletop roleplay session. Um, emotions that you feel in character can bleed over into your everyday life. Uh, you can have flashbacks to them. And this goes back to the early days of, of Nordic LARP. If you've ever seen the Nordic LARP book, which is an extraordinary thing, it won the Diana Jones Award a few years ago. There is a free PDF on the internet. It's basically, it's a coffee table book chronicling the early days of Nordic LARP which was insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, genuinely insane. There was, there's one game I'm particularly thinking of. I can't remember the name of it, but it was basically, it was modeled not explicitly, but quite closely on that TV miniseries, the, the day after the, uh, I think I mean the day. Oh after. boy. The one, um, uh, the nuclear war. Yeah. Threads? Um, threads are the day after. No, not threads, not okay. the British one. The American oh yeah. One. The day after. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, the idea was you, you turned up at this LARP and it was like a Midwestern town, obviously somewhere in, in Scandinavia, and you, you role-play. And because it was Nordic LARP, you developed characters before the game started and developed your interrelationships and you, you knew who everyone was. And there was a, um, you know, several hours of just kind of playing and then the sirens go off and everyone rushes into, into the basement of, of the town hall uh, which is full of, of boxes marked supplies and food and bandages and stuff like that. Um, I believe most of them actually contain subwoofers because at that point the bombs go off and the lights go out. Um, and if I recall correctly, at that point, the uh, the people running the game basically locked the doors and left them in there sobbing for about six hours. It's it, games that intended to traumatize people or to wow. put them through traumatic experience because they didn't really understand that this stuff did have not has the, no you know, uh, was were the results of the Stanford prison experiment never translated into Norwegian is this you have to understand the way that Europe regards America is just everything that happens over there is insane um, and does not necessarily have bearing on the real world uh, no it's I mean read the book it's extraordinary I, mean, I haven't read it in, in a few years I'm probably doing that game a huge disservice but the description is extraordinary bleed and similar concepts came out of that the idea that you can actually genuine effects you know good and bad um, you know people fall in love in a game and discover that they have those reciprocal feelings outside the games as well which if they're in a real world relationship can have can cause problems with a game like this that has mechanics that are specifically triggered by players' reactions to events rather than characters' reactions to events, like Shivering with Fear, and I made a bunch of notes about this. 
I would be really interested to know if the designers were aware of, of the concept of bleed. And this is something, because it's Nordic LARP, um, one of the interesting things about the Nordic LARP scene is that whereas an awful lot, the regular game scene, there's, you know, there are the practitioners, there are the designers and the players, and then there are the academics. And the academics tend to be players, but they don't tend to be designers as well. Whereas in Nordic LARP, it's a massive spectrum and everybody crosses over and you go to one of the big Nordic LARP conventions and, and you know, the, the program just, there's highly academic stuff on the program. There's highly, you know, there's highly, you know, how to do the logistics for a, a 400 person LARP and people just wander from one to the other. There's, it's not expected that the academics go to the academic stuff and the, you know, the games designers go to the game design stuff. It's, it's a very, very broad church. It's wonderful. And it's so rich as a result. I would be really interested to know if the designers of, of Bluebeard's Bride, Bride were aware of Bleed, had come across it, had read anything about it. Or if this is and parallel. chose consciously to, to, yes, were consciously bringing some of those elements in and had thought about whether Chevering with Fear is a, is a safe mechanic and how it sits alongside something like the X card. Or is this um, parallel because evolution? Because it strikes me as an element that's, Quite possibly. I mean, it's 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 one of those concepts. You say it, and it's oh yes, obviously I can see how that would happen. So it's quite possible it's cropped up simultaneously. But I, I'm really interested about authorial intention with with that particular mechanic and some of the stuff in here, which seems intent. You know, it is pushing people deliberately to feel uncomfortable in themselves rather than as their characters. And I talked in. I think it was the one about Night's Dark Agents, about games that are actually about horror and games that just simply play with the tropes of horror. This is explicitly a horror mm. game. This is a game that is supposed to make you feel disturbed and uncomfortable and and confront things that have come from, from quite possibly from a dark place within you. And it's worth saying, again, we said it at the top, we're gonna, I'm going to say it again now, it's a very feminine horror, and the game reiterates that several times and i do feel slightly odd that here we are three middle-aged white guys um you know yeah. in societal terms in 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 sec gender role terms we are we are the oppressors whether we want to be or not simply the fact that we exist gives us a certain position with it within that structure there is an awkwardness in in talking about some of the themes that this game brings up and the way that it, it confronts them mm-hmm partly because it's not our territory to talk about, although we, we should and, and we need to confront that and we need to understand stuff like that, but also because for us it's secondhand because we have not lived these horrors. We've, we've not right. felt, you know, confronted by this kind of oppression, this kind of abuse, this kind of, you know, physical... At least I, I, it is possible for men to, to, you know, male rape exists... Um, and happens, but it is by no means as, as frequent as as uh, female rape. And I'm I'm slightly drying up. Yeah, with, with, it's... Um, with with what I'm saying here. I've I've backed. I've driven myself in, in into an alley. It's there is an awkwardness in. I, I noticed it when we started off. There was an awkwardness in the way we were talking about it. There was a certain amount of dancing around the subject and not quite wanting to engage with it because as a guy, there are. It's it's there are bits of this game that are not comfortable to read because it's it's about us as oppressors. Well, it's about and, it's not about us. It's about the patriarchy. Well, like it's about it's yeah. a, it's about archetypes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, um, it, um, well, it's about societal structural violence against women and like how 
Mm. Um, it benefits all males, whether they acknowledge it or not in, in ways that like that, well, it's structural. It's not something that can be easily resolved. Um, and you know, for example, I was thinking about this game and I realized I would, I am interested in playing it, but not, I would not want to play it at a table that is, um, you know, less with more male players than female players. Mm. Um, I would, I would not want to do that because I don't think like the game is a like one of the central points of one of the principles for the groundskeeper is center the story on women's experiences. Um, and it's yeah. So I, yeah, I think you make a point. We can't, we, the three of us here um, cannot know what it is like to be a woman in society now and what their experience is like just because, well, yeah. yeah. And that has a knock on effect that I would be very cautious of any man who said, Oh yeah, I, I'll run Bluebeard's bride. No problem at all. I could do that. Yeah, I would, I would yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, um, that is something. And yeah, so that is, that is the challenge with this game. And, and if anybody, you know, this, this, uh, game sort of proves like, Oh, role-playing games, you know, can be challenging art. Like this is certainly, I think proof of that because, um, part of art is, you know, challenging our expectations and our, our perspectives on things. And, um, yeah, guess what this game is already doing, even though we haven't even played it. <laughs> so just the fact that discussing the game, uh, makes us think of and confront these, uh, the, the, the violence that, um, you know, another theme is actually, you could make a really good argument. This is also a game about, uh, capitalism because, in the in the fairy tale, in the story that they tell, they say that the, the bride is very poor and Bluebeard is very rich, and the bride is very very much wants to make the marriage work because it'll benefit her family, and um, the wealth is used as a tool by Bluebeard multiple ways to uh, keep the bride in her place and pre and keep himself safe from the the consequences of his own actions. He can kill as many brides as he wants. Because he is wealthy, he can always get a new bride. Um, so that would be that I thought of that, and obviously this book is not making that interpretation explicitly. That that is, but but yeah. it's kind of baked in. Yeah, um, I mean there are yeah. So before we get off into theory about you know patriarchy and capitalism in terms of like as a separate subject. Um, yeah, so how do people play it, I guess we should talk about? Um, yeah, um, oh, one more thing I would add to the how it does it. All right, am I allowed to do my future tense rant? Should we just take it as read? I actually, okay. I'm not going to do this again, but because this was a short book, I counted how many times the word will was used in 107 small pages with generous white space, and it came out to be about 120. Mm-hmm. And, you know, five of those are in quotes. Ten of them are in, like, dialogue where it's okay, but come on. I'm like, page 76 has the word will six times. One page. And it's such a good book, and it's so well written otherwise, that having each of these little eye pokes is oh, it's it's a missed opportunity. Putting the future tense in games belongs in a museum. It's like believing in phrenology, and now I'll stop. Um, 
the other thing I'll add about, uh, and it's, it's not, uh, you know, that's a, that's a complaint. Definitely a complaint. This next comment is not so much a complaint as just a statement of how it is. The book is relentlessly somber. It is, uh, it is not quite grim, uh, but it is very sober and takes itself very seriously. Uh, and uh, from what I've heard, that that carries over into sessions uh, that people who have run this and played it are, you know, tell me that, yeah, you know, people will titter nervously, but nobody is, nobody's busting a gut while playing Bluebeard's Bride. And that, so no. it, that, that sobriety and that seriousness really does seem to come through at the table as well, which again, my, my source who's run this a bunch said, you know, that may be because of the self-selecting group of people who play this, that if you show up for Bluebeard's Bride, you're, you know, you've, you've got your game face on, you're not just doing this for some casual yucks. Yeah, the, the book um, at the very beginning, its introductory material does make a point of saying to be sober. Um, and like, there's a whole page, uh, why play a horror game? Um, and I think that's not, the, well, there's, there's a page where it says you wouldn't go to a, a, a serious game wearing, um, oh, here it is actually page 11 expectations, setting expectations. You would not show up to a funeral wearing a clown suit and should not play a horror game when you would, when you would rather play a game about superheroes. Bada bang. So it's designed to push your limits, uh, of your intellectual dark side and exercise everyone's twisted imaginations. But that means... And, and then it goes on, but like that, that's, it's very explicit about like what it wants you to think and what, yeah, mood you should be in, what tone it should be. And, um, I haven't seen it. Yeah. This is out of all the games you're studying. This is even more explicit than, uh, Delta green in terms of how to set the expectation, um, and how to play it correctly, or at least to, to best effect, I guess you would say. Yeah. I mean, there, I would draw a difference between Continuum tells you how to play it correctly, which is, oh, you have to memorize this stuff and you have to do this and this and this. <laughs> this, as opposed to doing that, sets expectations. And for a game that is all about constraint of the characters, it is not quite so bossy towards the players. And I think part of this is that, you know, one game was written in the 90s and one game was written in the 21st century. And the expectation that the GM and the players are going to be at each other's throats and have an adversarial relationship is something that we are thankfully sweeping more and more into the dustbin of history. Um, page 36 emphasizes cooperation with the GM, which, you know, I'm like, man, what a fresh, what a breath of fresh air. What a concept. This is great. The idea that you might actually be working together to create the experience collaboratively instead of, uh, you know, the players constantly being, well, how can I derail this? And the GM asking, okay, how can I keep my train locked on its tracks despite all those players meddling with it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I did appreciate that. That's, 
Ah, that's nice. Um, I, I One of my notes just says, intoxicatingly free of tabletop RPGs wargaming roots. So no. I, I do like this very much in its attempt to expand what gaming is. And, you know, it... I would rather see something that attempts to do something very new, which this does, and hits that with 90% uh, or 95% accuracy than something that is 110% the most perfect D&D module from 1996. You know, it's like, let's do something new. Let's do something different, and this definitely does that. Yeah, uh, something mature yeah. and something for adults in in the best sense, as we we talked about, not the um, shallow, you know, edge lord way. Um, so, yeah, know. it it feels really fresh. I mean, apart from the the one thing I said, which because I've read far too many role playing games, the whole all the players are playing the same character thing, which has has precedence. But barely all the rest of it. Barely. Feel, yeah. Yes, it's it yeah. But the rest of it, the whole the, from the approach to the way it's it's structured, I have to say I was not a great fan of the way the book was was structured, but it's it's clear enough. Mm-hmm. As as Craig said, ninety percent of this is, is stuff I genuinely felt I hadn't seen before, and it's done really well. There are a couple of things that stand out. The use of game terms, the use of moves in particular. Whenever they crop up in the text, it, it's like somebody has done it in falsetto. It, the tone just jumps off the page and feels slightly wrong. Um, but apart from... And that's, that is a niggle. That, that is not, you know... Um, and again, that's if, I think if, if one was playing it, and I've not played it, I have to admit... Um, if you were playing it and somebody starts talking in game terms, it's going to break the, the narrative spell. And this is, this is, you know, what we're named after is that's Ludo narrative dissonance right there. Um, but that, that is a quibble. That's, um, that's nothing more than, um, you know, a very minor blip in what is, is otherwise a, an amazing attempt to break really new ground for what a role-playing game can be and do and how it the stories it can tell and in particular the way those stories are going to affect all right well and i'll add another thing that came up and i'm not sure how how strictly this is observed at the table and how and if it it works or is always done but um let's let's call it the protagonist barrier right in most games there are areas where the player has absolute sovereignty or there is an assumption of absolute sovereignty. It's like, okay, in Delta Green, you can tell me what my character experiences, but you can't tell me how I react to it. You don't get to, uh, you know, tell me my emotions. You don't get to tell me I've fallen in love with so-and-so. Um, or that, you know, I take an instant dislike to this character. Um, and, you know, it's even more explicit in Unknown Armies where I'm like, okay, you can, the only thing you can absolutely make another person do is die. You know, you can, you can persuade them. You can say, oh, if you do what I say, 
good things and if you do and if you defy me bad things but you cannot change someone's mind whereas here the gm can say you feel this and you do this you you raise your hand to the scarred countenance of the the dead bride and stroke it lovingly and that's that's okay and it's like they're they've ex they've replaced the assumption of player sovereignty with an X card. And it's like if the GM starts as saying, you are deeply aroused by this de demonic goat man, instead of saying, no, I'm not, you just X card it. And it's, an, it's a very fundamental change and therefore very interesting. Uh, and I, I'm curious to see how that works out in you know, real time at the table. And I, I can see how it works out a little better because it's less a case where there is, where you have your guy, you know, the, the quote unquote, your guy. And again, guy huh, in Bluebeard's Bride, but you have your character who is uniquely yours, whom you have created and is, uh, in a sense, you you have power over them. I don't want to use the word sovereignty again and repeat myself, but it's here you don't even have that unique individual right. who is your own character. You're all together collectively playing the bride. And the ring serves as a steering wheel moment by moment, but everyone has input. So I can see how giving the groundskeeper GM some input too is less jarring than it would be in a more traditional uh, ongoing campaign style game where everyone is expected to stay in the lane of their PC. Yeah, it does really break down that, that limit between, you know, you have your one playing piece in this game to you don't even have that um <laughs> i i think um in another way it really emphasizes and this is again part of this way it and this is actually thematic connecting to like like a woman's body is not her own like that the, in, mm -hmm. in, in, in a patriarchy you have to do what you're told you have to fulfill certain societal obligations you can't be yourself and choose what to do like you can't even leave the house like you, you are there, you have to know your, know your place essentially. And so that's another way it's, it's reinforcing its theme through game mechanics. Um, I think probably the most, um, for me, one of the, one of the things that really caught my eye was really, uh, on the section of curating the rooms, uh, page 76, 77, um, because that's the core of the game is exploring different rooms and each room has a different horror in it. Um, and while there are example ones and while there is a book of them, uh, the book of rooms, um, most of the time you have to make them up and the section on settle, each room has a threat. So settle on the room thread, which underlie the horrors and haunt each room and reflect the aesthetic and vulnerabilities of the bride revealed during character creation. As we mentioned earlier, the, the, the questions are asked of each aspect, each sister, these threats are separated into body motherhood, religion, and sexuality, each with subsets reflecting greater refinement. Um, and so again, very explicit. This, this is about the, 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 uh, 
the grim realities that face women every day. This is like, it's not like you can choose what makeup, whatever you want. You have to pick one of those four major themes and then work within a sub theme. Um, and so this is a game that's going to get very uncomfortable pretty quickly for at least one player, I would imagine, because talking about family, you know, family, uh, uh problems, um, in under motherhood or, uh, you know, religion, that, that thing you always bring up during polite dinner conversations. Uh, <laughs> Is the bride open to unholy influences though? Right. Um, or in sexuality, abortion is literally one of the horrors that one of the threats of the room. Um, and the, the book me multiple times about like, Oh, this bride died because she miscarried and she blamed herself. And she, she, she died instead of letting letting Bluebeard be disappointed in her. And, you know, uh, it, so yeah, this, this, this game is going to go there. This is, it is not, uh, um, hiding or minimizing the threats, uh, and the kind of horror you'll be, you'll be seeing in this game. Um, it says, no, these are the things that this game is about. Um, use violence and love to teach her how to think is one of the room moves. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, I'm going to drag it a little bit back to the more uh, technical. What's that mean, though? Well, that that's I mean, that's a great thing. It's a it's a it's a metaphorical game. So like you can you can interpret that however you want. Um, I think that's also the the people who play this game probably have I, I imagine the players for this game are very self-selecting. Um, yep. you're not going to get casual players because once a casual person hears anything about this game, they're going to know if they're going to be into it at all. And like, it's going to, in some ways, filter out unsuitable players. I think, um, I'm, I would imagine most of the time when I was trying to think of how to explain, not just Bluebeard's bride, but in a sense, the larger experience of loving horror and loving mm-hmm. disturbing movies, I saw. I finally saw Audition recently. Speaking of uh, female-centered horror, but it made me think of the traditional Chicago beverage malort. Have you guys heard mm-hmm. of this? Oh yeah. No. Uh, no. No idea. It is. I, it's. I'm a big fan. Yeah. It is like it, if absinthe is too sweet and gentle for you. Try Malort, which is a raw and more bitter wormwood derived liqueur, and I, I went. Th- see, see, see my previous notes on how Europe regards American <laughs> culture. And well, but the great thing about Malort is just like you know, the horror movie tells you you're not silly for thinking the world is scary. If you are depressed and feeling blue. And you're like, man, I need a drink. Malort is that drink because you will drink it and you will be like, yes, whoever made this gets it. They know the troubles of the world. But at the same time, you won't want to keep drinking. So it it's sort of uh, it's like when an oil well catches fire and you blow it up to put the fire out. It's a little bit like that for shame spirals. It's uh, it's a great so, thing. To go on to our last question, why people play it that way? Um, I've I, I've actually had uh, more than my fair shots of my lord, and I realize 
at this point, I only drink Malort when I can get other people in the room to take a shot with me because I don't want to suffer alone. But they, <laughs> if they suffer, then I, I derive enjoyment from it uh, to see them suffer. And I'm suffering the same thing as well. So. Wow. Oh, no. Almost all of my Malort drinking was done by myself. So. Oh, well. <laughs> Which is. I, yeah. Not- uh, just to be the to be the third point in that triangle, I have no intention of ever trying. <laughs> it's been described if I can possibly. It's avoid. been described as it tastes like a punch in the nose. Um, uh, it's it's amazing. It's actually the aftertaste. It lasts for like ten minutes. Uh, I I would say it yeah. tastes more like the way a stubbed out cigar smells. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not selling it. That's the point. Uh, it's, I've I've drunk stuff. I've drunk Chinese medicinal wine with baby rats. Good lord! It. I'm not going anywhere near. <laughs> I would try that wine. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was like, it, it was like a strong sherry. It was surprisingly palatable. I don't know. But I did. did I, I would just think that I would worry about them looking at me. Um, we no. seem to have drifted. As I recall, their eyes hadn't opened. But, yet. Oh, I mean, well, that ahead. makes it okay. Uh, but okay, so yes, my so so the suspicion might be that people play Bluebeard's Bride to commiserate. Is that is that what you're getting at? Mm. That yeah, this I think, is I think, yeah, and that it validates your feelings and your experiences, even when those feelings and experiences are bad and dark, Mm -hmm. which, you know, that's sometimes all you can do is say, Oh yeah, that's terrible. I, I know what you mean. I see where you're coming from. I I think there's, there's an element of, of catharsis as well, which you mentioned in there as well. Just not, not that the story itself will have a cathartic ending, but simply the, the pleasure of coming out the other side and knowing that you've been through those experiences and that you have survived them. Um, you've confronted them and, and, and you, the player, have, have come out the other side. And I can think of movies and indeed some albums that are that are like that as, as well, though not tapped into the, the female experience so, so much. Uh, there are pieces of art that exist to be tolerated. And not tolerated. Tolerated is the, is the wrong word, but endured. Um, and I know I know people who've watched certain Throbbing Gristle movies. Um, there's I'm not going to go into details about sure. it. Uh, um, there, um, I'm forgetting the guy. My my ex-wife was quite into his work. She wrote books about death traditions and, and stuff. But a guy who his films are you know actual films of autopsies and, and stuff like that. And you know there were there are connoisseurs of, of his movies. Huh. Although I never, never met one who actually particularly enjoyed them. Um, and I think there's, there's obviously a very different thing, but I think there's an, there's an overlap here. One comes out of an experience like that feeling, not that one never has to do it again, but simply that one got to the end and one can then appreciate it as a, as a whole work and, and digest it in safety, in, in a calmer place. Yeah. Uh, and and to take things away from. I, th- I think that's the key. Is that it's this game is about the impact, um, like mm. that. It, like the, a game that you play for three hours with friends, and then the imagery and the met- and the imagery you evoke and the story that you tell, like lives with you. Uh, I mean, certainly if I see a, a, a movie 
that moves me. Um, I'm thinking about it for days afterwards. And then every once in a while, even for months or even years later, I'll like, oh, yes, um, the, it, it haunts you in a way. But in a way that's not like bad. It's just moving. It 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 uh, uh, changed your perspective, if even only a little bit. This um, yeah. This makes sense because I have seen Audition. Yeah, exactly. This makes Audition. sense because I have seen The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that, that's sort of the appeal of uh, uh, horror in general um, is to... I mean, some of it is the, some, the good guy victory, but you know, a lot of the greatest horror movies aren't like the good guy doesn't win. You know, um, I remember the first movie horror movie I saw is well, not the first horror movie, but I remember seeing Night of the Living Dead as a child. And that one, the main character, you know, spoiler for a 1968 movie, uh, the main character dies at the end, shot by mistake by other humans. Um, and I didn't know that you could have a movie where the good guy didn't win. Uh-huh. That, uh, that I didn't know that that was possible. Um you know. I'm just I'm just picturing you seeing this with your jaw dropped open and then like your older brother comes in behind you and he's like, also Santa Claus isn't real. <laughs> I mean probably. <laughs> uh that, that does sound like something my brother would do. <laughs> uh, as, but, as long as you're all yeah. as long as you're already at the emotional day deer, let's get all yeah, this okay. other stuff out of the way too. Yeah. But the vast majority of role-playing games are success mm-hmm. stories. They are, I mean, the, the, the majority of power mm-hmm. fantasies, the vast majority mm-hmm. are success stories. You are expected to succeed, and there's not necessarily going to be a happy ending, but you at least get to the end of, of a story and you survive. You go into, players go into Bluebeard's Bride with a very strong anticipation that their character is going to die horribly at the end. Mm-hmm. That's that's true. Um, it's, or a fate worse than death, you know, you know she's transformed yes. into a monster or um you know imprisoned in some horrible way uh yeah co-opted yes. by bluebeard mm-hmm. uh, turning and and, yeah. and becoming another like enforcer of the patriarch inflicting violence on future brides instead of bluebeard like um which i feel is one of the more insidious things that it does is that like a lot of the times the people threatening the bride or other women, other servants or former brides that instead of turning against their oppressor, they're turning against each other. And, um, which is another grim reality, uh, that a lot of women face. So, um, mm. yeah. Um, yeah. But, but going into any, any artistic experience and I categorize Bluebeard's bride within that knowing or having a good, sense of how it's going to conclude is a kind of an unusual thing. It's I have a friend who says he always reads the last couple of pages of a book before, you know, before really starting it. So he knows he's going to end. Um, very famously, the Billy Crystal character in When Harry Met Sally does the same mm-hmm. thing. I've never un- understood that, but I can see how it transforms one's reaction to a work, particularly an interactive work like this. And you have to remember, interactivity changes everything, as I used to tell my narrative students. The fact that you're inside this story. If we, if you were watching this, this would be a relentlessly horrible movie. Mm. Um, it would be, you know, it, it's because there isn't an awful lot of narrative structure. There isn't an awful lot of story structure to it. It's structure, yes, not necessarily story structure. It would have a lot of spectacle. But the fact that you're on... You, yeah, you're on the inside. You're experiencing it essentially face uh, firsthand in in your mind's eye. But at the same, you have limited 
ability to, to act and, and react because of the constraints that we were talking about earlier on. That's a really, really interesting and, again, I'm going to say groundbreaking framework for, for the form, giving, you know, making sure that your players can't do everything that they might want to do, uh, limiting their, their possible well, reactions. You know, speaking of... But at the same time, making sure that they do have freedom to act. They do feel that they ought to nominally be able to do something about this. Right. I'd be interesting if there's groups that, you know, or, or players out there who in a particular situation don't tap the X card, go, no, you've given me these three moves that my character can do. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to break out of the game mechanic restrictions you've given me here in a way that tabletop role-playing games you can do. Yes. You can never do in a computer game because of the nature of the form. But you can do in role-play if there is a consensus there that you are going to break the rules. You can smash that wall break out and do the unthinkable. And I really hope there are, because I think, again, let's push the form. Let's let's mm -hmm. take this into places, and particularly stories of, of this type and subject matter of, of this type. We should all be fighting back against this. We should all be going beyond what the rules say that we should and shouldn't do. We should all be finding new ways to, to react and fight back. Mm -hmm. I, You know, it, when you were talking, James, it made me realize that if <laughs> no um talking comparing this to other role-playing games and especially you know how you expect it to survive i mean and if you think about just as storytelling like most role-playing games are procedurals they're stories of like how a group of characters does a thing or do they do the thing or do they not either very you know plot driven um and but that's not the only type of fiction there is. There is character-driven fiction. And really, if you think of Bluebeard's Bride not as a plot-driven story about what happens to this bride when she goes into Bluebeard's mansion and what her fate is, if you think of it as the character study of a doomed bride, uh, a doomed young woman uh, who has been whisked into this mansion, and it's about her. And that's what the game is really about. Who is this bride? What what are her fears? What are her hopes? Um, how does you know what makes up her personality, her 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 emotions? And obviously, with the sisters, you get to really interrogate that and really examine as she has conflicts within herself, which is something role playing games typically don't do. Intra personality conflicts, you know, I'm conflicted between two drives to escape and to, to, uh, to help this person or for example. Um, so if you, th so I think that's what they're really trying to do is it's, it's reveal this character, um, rather than, and by setting the fate as a foregone conclusion, you know, she's doomed one way or the other. Um, then you don't have to worry about that. You can just focus on understanding this very nuanced, multi-layered person uh, and have it revealed to you through gameplay what the effect the world has had on her. So I think that's really like very interesting as, as, in terms of game design because not many games really do that and certainly not to this level of detail. This is like, you know, a literary novel, but uh, that's introspective about this young person who is who is doomed but we who is this person what are they about and we get to see that in liter linear fiction a lot but not in gameplay very often simply because mm -hmm. of how it's structured um so yeah yeah oh there it is uh, bluebeard's yeah. bride um yeah. yeah hope maybe someday uh some one or all of us will get to play it i don't know it, like i said 
Um, I don't think I would ever want to play it without uh, a majority of the players at the table being uh, female, uh, simply because, yeah, it's the patriarchy. I can't, I can't. Um, well, oh, yeah. the only exception yeah. to that, the only, I would, I would play with a female groundskeeper and all the other players being male. Oh, that's interesting. I think, think, I think that would be very interesting. I mean, there would have to be, yeah, the right kind of yeah, as, as we were saying, self-selecting mm-hmm. male uh, male players, players yeah. who were were up for taking the experience seriously. Yeah. Um, um, that would, but yeah. I, I, I see. I just had yeah. the thought: How would you do this as an immersive LARP? And immediately, my better nature is like, you wouldn't. It would be too dangerous and traumatizing. It would be like going through one of those extreme haunted houses. Only mm-hmm. there's only one person doing it, and half, and it's not jump scares; it's emotional trauma. So, and part of this game's appeal, or sort of like how it does what it does, is through metaphor. So you can't have, like, you can't make up bird women in cages, you know, on the fly. As yeah, symbolizing of of how they're, you know, yeah. First the. And- First, the player would have to write out a detailed psychological inventory mm-hmm. and then submit it to the GMing team who would then get uh, four or five months to uh, develop a, a, a series of symbolic challenges to their psyche. So Yeah, it would be, it would be a little much. Um, well, I think that... that- uh, covers it. Um, so, uh, thank you all for listening to this episode. Um, again, oh, I, I do oh. have one more thing to add one tiny detail, which is mm-hmm. that as I was reading this, I kept thinking about the book Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno Garcia, which in many ways, I'm like, you can really see the parallels between the traditional, uh, you know, the Gothic novel, of the woman with really great hair running away from a spooky house at night genre and the process of Bluebeard's Bride, or at least the sort of threats and constraint of Bluebeard's Bride. Uh, As we wrap up, uh, once again, thank you to all our backers and supporters, specifically in this case, Sean Jameson. A special thank you to Chris Hammond uh, for backing this Kickstarter. Uh, and uh, yes, in, enormous gratitude to Trevor Hannon for making all of this possible. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying this because we certainly are. It's true. 